Hello, this is the second to last video of our series of videos about um, Intro to Lutheranism, YouTube Catechesis, uh, Christian Instruction. And as the last video, we talked, we began talking about what it is to live as a Christian. We are continuing in that theme. And what we're going to be focusing on is out of Luther's small catechism is this section that is known as the Table of Duties. And this largely deals with the question of vocation. Not vacation, vocation, V-O-C-A-T-I-O-N. It's taken from the Latin word vocatio, which means calling. So every single, hum every single Christian has a calling. They have a calling in life, a place where they are called to serve the Lord. And there's many different vocations. And not every and most everyone has more than just one vocation. So, for example, I'll take myself. Myself, my vocation is yes, I'm a pass, I'm associate pastor here at St. Paul Luther Church in Ida Grove. Um, but I'm also I'm a son. Uh, I have a brother and sister, so therefore I'm a brother. Uh, I have, I live in Iowa, so I am a resident of Iowa. Um, I'm a resident of the United States of America or a citizen. Uh, there's all, so those are just some of the different types of vocations we have. And all these aspects, we are ultimately serving God's kingdom. And so everything we do is, as I talked about in the last video, Luther encouraged that every morning when you wake up to make the sign of the cross. And the reason is, is to remind yourself who you are. It's to give you confidence and reassurance when things don't go your way. But it's also a reminder that he is the one that you are serving. In everything you do, you're, so I talked about that, God does not demand that he be first in your life. He demands that he is everything in your life. Everything you do in your life ultimately is in service to him. And so even when you work at your job or whatever, you, everything you're doing, you have to be, you're supposed to be mindful and say, how is this honoring to my God? All right. And by the way, here's one little thing I got to note is so, one of your, if you in your vocation, you choose your vocation over your service to, over your reception of God's word, reception of his sacrament, that is a dishonoring of both your vocation and of your faith. And so remember, these vocations are not held above God's word. It's not held above the reception of his word and reception of his sacrament. Rather, they are done in, in reaction to his word and his sacrament. And the goal, ultimately, in every vocation is to draw people to his word. Um, this is kind of the thing about evangelism. and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into this subject of um, vocation. So we're in Luther's small catechism again. So again, I'm using this book, Martin Luther's 
uh, small and large catechism. We're, we're not going to read anything for the large catechism, but I do encourage you to go read the large catechism. It's pretty interesting. But anyways, so a table of duties says certain passages of scripture for various holy orders and positions, admonishing them about their duties and responsibilities. So first, to bishops, pastors, and preachers. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. 1 Timothy, Timothy 3, verse 2 to 4. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. And then finally, he must hold his family to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So what you have there is the outlining a little bit of what is expected of a pastor. I've already done a video dealing with the issue of women pastors, but it's kind of reflected in here. But it's showing that the pastor is supposed to have one. He's never to have more than one wife, so he can't have multiples. Um, and that also is, by the way, um, a pastor should is, is, must never have initiated a divorce. Now, I'm talking about specific, unless we're talking about in the case of infidelity. So... The pastor is supposed to have a good a household in good order. That's that can sometimes be tough for a pastor, and it's tough to be a pastor's kids because they're always held above. They go, "Oh, that kid's supposed to be holier than thou." But pastor kids have troubles too, and they have struggles. So pray for your pastor, pray for his wife, pray for his kids. They have them. Uh, temperate. He knows he doesn't get angry very easily. Doesn't get drunk. Uh, doesn't become violent, is not obsessed with possessions and money. Uh, <clears throat> and then it also says here, you should not be a recent convert. So somebody can, should not be like, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, man, I'm so on fire for Jesus and go become a pastor after a couple weeks, hypothetically. Um, again, the reason is, is because maybe the, there is no foundation to the faith. It will, it will not be hard for the devil to scorch it out. Uh, it's one of the scary things is whenever you see somebody, or the nerve-wracking things, I should say, when you see a new Christian who's just on fire for the faith, they're on fire for Jesus, and you're watching them, their energy, and you're hoping that it maintains for years and years to come, but we also are weary and afraid that the devil, he's there. He is sitting there in the corner. Um, a really good book to read about this is it's called uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, where it's about this newborn Christian, this guy that was an atheist and became a Christian. And he goes into all the ways that the devil works on his mind to lead him away from Christ. And it's amazing all the different subtle ways that the devil works on literally every one of us. But he works really hard on the newborn Christian to get him right away to say become afraid, to run away, whatever. So 
Um, this is why it's not good for a new convert to become a pastor because they want they need to have that foundation. Um, when a pastor falls, it is extremely destructive to the church. Um, then he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. So in other words, the pastor needs to be educated. The pastor needs to know the scriptures. He needs to know how to be able to teach about the scriptures. And so he's able to he's supposed to be able to encourage sound doctrine or sound teaching and be able to refute those who are teaching bad doctrine. And by the way, that's not the easy part. Uh, we as pastors are called to refute false teaching. And a lot of people, especially in our modern culture where we're we're an age of quote tolerance, which is we completely messed up the word. Tolerance means to acknowledge that there are there are false teaching out there, and tolerate the and be tolerant, or to tolerate the individual who teaches them, and you have to deal with it. But it does not mean you accept them as being true, and it does not mean that you can't say that they're false. That's that tolerance. That's empty-mindedness. It's shutting off your brain. So. And it's just bad practice because it could really lead people to do really stupid things. So the pastor is charged to refute false teaching, false doctrine. Um, and the reason we do it is for the sake of the individual. As uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to 1 Timothy, he said, Keep a close eye on your doctrine, for in, spite, in so doing you'll save the both the life of yourself and your heroes. We do this for the sake of the individual who is being held captive by the false teaching. So what do the hearers owe their pastors? The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14. So yes, you're supposed to provide for the pastor in his uh, financial well-being. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Galatians 6, 67. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. So again, pretty much these three verses are all about, yes, you're supposed to pay the pastor. Um, the, you're supposed to provide for his well-being. Now, this does not mean the pastor has to go get rich, because remember, the pastor is not to be a lover of money. But when the pastor, you're still supposed to provide for him, uh, make sure his family's provided for. Um, and and also, you know, it says provide all good things. That's not just uh, providing uh, financial. It's also providing um, care and compassion. Remember, your pastor is ultimately a human being. Um, so you are to be compassionate and caring to the pastor as well. Uh, remember, the pastor is your pastor. Um, now, you don't have to become his pastor, but remember that, there is kind of isn't that challenge. So the pastors, we don't have, quote, our pastor. I mean, we kind of have the circuit visitor, um, which is kind of a 
a supervisor. But even there, it's not quite the same because he's a representative of the district. And so as pastors, we quite often a pastor does not have somebody they easily can confide in because uh, we have our own struggles. We have our own challenges. And so, you know, pray for your pastor um, and be mindful. The pastors have their struggle, their own struggles, their own weaknesses. We might actually say something we didn't mean to say. We... Um, we slip up. We make mistakes. We are as human as you are. We are as much of a sinner as you are. Um, you'll notice whenever you go to church, you'll hear the pastor say, when you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you, notice the pastor say, confessing right with you because the pastor is also a sinner. Uh, chief of sinners, though I be, Paul said of, and every pastor could say the same of himself. So, uh <clears throat> You know, give thanks to the pastor. Say thank you for things that he does for you, does in the church. I mean, we're. I mean, I wish to say that us as pastors, we struggle with uh, words of encouragement and thanks. We struggle because we don't want to demand it because they kind of come. We feel like that might be a little egotistical. But on the other hand, is that we do? I think most pastors are glad to hear it. Because it is to let us know, okay, we are doing something right. Because just like anyone else, pastors have doubts. They wonder, what am I doing? What's the point of me doing the things that I'm doing? And there's sometimes we have weeks where things are not going our way. And sometimes those especially are the times when you really could use those words of encouragement. Sometimes there are crises, the crises in the church. And those words of encouragement are good. So another verse, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So again, admonish and hold them in the highest regard in, in love because of their work. And then finally, obey your leaders and submit to the authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, verse 17. So those are all verses from Scripture about your relationship to the pastor as, uh, as laity. So the next part is, is concerning civil government. It says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, do you want? For do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, very simply, the government is God's servant. Yes, we are to honor them. Of citizens, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Matthew 22, verse 21. That comes from the mouth of Jesus. 
And again, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Romans 13, verse 5 through 7. And one more verse. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live in peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. I guess there's two more verses. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Titus 3, verse 1. And then finally, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 to 14. So the scriptures do give us the command that we are one, yes, you are to pay taxes. That's part of obedience to the government. Now, it is true that the government should not tax excessively because that would qualify as theft. But taxation in and of itself is not theft. The government has a right to do that. Think of it as a fee for governing, a fee for having roads, Protection, military, police, fire department, um, a fee for being in this nation. We're protected by the laws that you have. So you can think of it that way. I mean, honestly, yes, it's your property, but ultimately, I mean, your property or you work here, but you're ultimately also living under the protection of this government. And so, yes, they have the right to pay taxes. To charge you with taxes, and yes, they have the right to administer justice upon you if you don't pay taxes, if you don't pay revenue, or if you're speeding on the interstate, or um, you know whatever crime you commit, they have the authority to do that. That's part of their their role as government. You also have the duty to pray for them, pray for your president, pray for your governor, uh, pray for your Congress, whatever even the ones you don't like. So if you're a Republican, you pray for the Democrats. If you are a Democrat, you pray for the Republicans. If you're an independent, pray for one another. Pray for whoever it may be. And you're also supposed to, now this is the one that, so we pray, quite often we pray for the government. We want to pray um, that they get wisdom and they're wise in their decision-making. And that's good. That's a good idea. But very rarely do we do what Paul, what Paul recommends. He says that you are just supposed to give thanksgiving. How often do we actually give thanks to God for our leaders, for our government, for our politicians? Now, you probably very easy. So let's say, you know, right now Donald Trump is our president. So if you're a, a Trump supporter, I'm sure it's easy for you to give thanks for Donald Trump. 
But let's go back. Let's step backwards eight years. Was it easy to give thanks for Barack Obama? Or let's say you're not, you're, you're on the other side. Maybe you don't like Donald Trump. And you like, but you prefer, you liked Obama. So it's easy to give thanks for Obama, but is it easy to give thanks to Donald Trump? So, but we are to pray and give thanks to God for all of our governing authorities, even the ones we don't always see eye to eye with. And now you might be sitting there saying, well, Paul, you don't know anything about corrupt governments. And like, yeah, he does. Um, he's talking about a government that was executing Christians left and right. Um, Paul himself would eventually be beheaded. And yet he says, pray a prayer of thanksgiving for them. It's not easy, but we are commanded to do so. So the next up is husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In Colossians 3, verse 19, that's 1 Peter 3, verse 7. In Colossians 3, verse 19, <coughs> husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So that's actually... I'm going, to, I'm going to read the one on wives, too. So two wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 22. And then this is, then they were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 1 Peter 3, verse 5 to 6. So... That is dealing with marriage. The weaker partner, that was one thing that stands out and it's not really easy to deal with. But I think that's probably a discussion for another time. But I want to get at the core of this is about the issue of marriage it's talking about here, the relationship of husband and wife. When it talks about husbands, um, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He's actually telling you this because this is, so God created man to be the head of the wife. And I talked about this when we got, when we talked about, um, I think it was the sixth commandment. Uh, yeah, when we talked about adultery. So I talked about it there. But when God created man, he created it that the man would be the head of the wife. But see, ever since the fall into sin, the temptation every marriage is two is four two great temptations. Two great temptations for men and two great temptations for women. The two great temptations of men is that since the man is the house, head of the house, and he's created with that, with those assets to be the head of the house. The temptation of every man is to be harsh, to be a tyrant, to create fear in his wife. Of fear of him. That is the one of the one of the two great temptations. The other great temptation is for the man, because he knows he's not to be harsh with her. He's not supposed to be tyrannical. She's not supposed to be afraid of her husband. And so, but sometimes what men can do is they will they get that part, but they go farther 
and they let the wife be the head of the house. And I would say that in American culture, that is actually much more common. Even though they understand that they're they, the man, is supposed to be the head of the house, quite often the wife is the one that's functioning as the head of the house. And many men do not do what they're supposed to do as husbands. On the flip side, wives have two great temptations. Wives have the temptation to... Um, to want to take over the headship. They want to take control. They want to be the head of the house. The other great temptation is for women to become doormats. Women will let their husband walk all over them. And neither of these things are godly. Neither of these are Christian marriage. Husband and wives are designed to complement one another. And so the thing about weaker, that kind of does actually speak to the fact that we are, husbands are to protect their wives. That is their biggest job, is to protect their wife. Now, there, is, there are women that are stronger than men. But on average, your average woman is weaker than the average man. The average man is faster, than, faster and stronger than the average woman. And if you don't believe me, Look, you look at the data. So just to give you a perspective on this, I'll, I've looked this up before. And so I'm just going to give you one really simple, you know, the, like the strength thing. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, there's just, there are women that are very strong. They can bench press, you know, over 300 pounds and things like that. Those are strong women. But there are strong men who are pushing five, six, seven hundred pounds. I mean, the strength difference between the strongest man and the strongest woman is a pretty sizable gap. And here's the example I like to use. So I'm trying to pull this up on my iPad. All right, so the world record holder for the 100-meter dash for women is 10.49 seconds. For men, it is 9.58 seconds. So there's a whole 100-second se gap. So let me look. So this is... So I just picked up a random state here. Okay, so, so the 10.49 is the world record holder for all women for the 100-meter dash. So I just picked a totally random state. The, the record for boys 
high school boys for the 100-meter dash is 10.38 seconds in the state of Ohio. And the reason I could pick just any ra random state is because pretty much any state in the country, I could look that up and it will give you the same answer. That means there's basically 50 – there are 50 high school boys with a better 100-meter dash than the fastest woman in the world. Think about that. That is how much the gap is between men and women. And so this is God-designed men and women to – designed men in a way to, to use their strength, their speed – to protect the wife. And we understand this. Why do you think we get more disturbed by men abusing women than women abusing men? It's because statistics, I mean, they both happen. And actually, recent studies are starting to show that the comparison is less. I mean, if you were to watch, when you watch a movie, it happens almost all the time. You see a guy get slapped by a woman. And nobody goes, oh my goodness, look at what she did. She abused her husband. Very rarely do we do that. We think nothing of it. But if a man did the exact same thing, we would gasp. And we would be like, how dare he do that? And the reason is because we understand that on average, that in most of these cases, when you see this, the man is physically stronger than the wife is. And so God created man and woman, created man to be in a state position to protect his wife not because she's in weak i mean she is physically in the because of weakness but it's actually it's a speaking mostly of her value god created man to be stronger in many in many ways to protect the val the greater value of women all right and he gives the command husbands Love your wives. Do you, Paul says this in Colossians. He also says it in Ephesians. Husband, love your wives. And when he said that in both of those letters, it was radical. In Corinth, in ancient Greece, husbands didn't love women. Men didn't. It was rare for a man to love his wife. What women basically existed in Greece was basically for the purpose of having babies. They'd sleep with them, have a baby, and say, see you later, whatever. They they had more interest in boys than they did in women. And when you research into what Greece, Rome, the Greco-Roman culture was, their marriages were messed up. So when Paul said, love your wives, that was culture, cultural, that was a major cultural shift. It's like, what? I'm supposed to love my wife? What? I thought I was just supposed to just just supposed to have babies. No, you're supposed to love her. To parents, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. Ephesians six verse four. Yesterday we were, I was, so I talked about this sometimes with some of our kids. Is that your pa parents are not supposed to punish. Their children. They are, however, to discipline their children. And there's a difference. The word punish just means to create pain, to create suffering. 
To punish means you don't really give thought as to what what is going to happen, what the penalty is for what they have done. You just you just cause suffering. Discipline is taken from the word. It's taken from the same word that means from the word disciple. It means teach. It's a teaching. The purpose of disciplining a child is to teach them. So in other words, parents are not supposed to, to be, again, tyrannical. They're to, their job is to teach their children, to raise them up, instruct them. So sometimes you grant their kids, kids are grounded, they have to sit in the corner, whatever. But it's all for the purpose of teaching them. Teaching them not to do the things that are destructive. And the reason is because you want to preserve your child. You want your children to live long. You want your child to have the best of their life, to have a good and prosperous life. You know, that is what you want as a parent, that they're prosperous and ultimately that they're growing up in the faith and they grow up to be good servants of Christ and stewards of the faith, expressing the faith, witnessing the faith in whatever they do. You celebrate their gifts, their talents, their abilities, but you are to discipline. You are not to be overbearing. Your ch a child should never fear or resent his parents. Now they might resent them from in the moment of punishment, but it should not be long term resentment. All right, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1-3. So yes, children, obey your parents. And yes, it may go well with you that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And understand you're not going to enjoy a long life on earth because you're doing good works. You're enjoying a long life on earth because... You listen to your parents, it naturally allows you to live longer because you're doing common sense things. If you have good parents and you obey them, yeah, you'll have a good life. To workers of all kinds, slaves or servants, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a servant or free. So be a good employee. Do a good job. Do not be lazy in your job. Do what you're supposed to do. Even if you have a, a mean, you don't like your employer, even if they don't pay you the way you'd like, you're supposed to be good. If you don't like the job, go get a new job. But at the end, as long as you're under the contract, under the agreement, be honoring. So remember, you begin the day in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Remember, you stand as Christ's witness. And when, as a Christian, you work slothfully, you're negligent in your job, in your vocation. And by the way, this could be 
you know, working at, you know, a gas station, uh, you know, working in a factory, working in an office, um, working as a pastor, whatever it could be. There's any of a number of places you could be doing working that this can apply to. And this also could apply to being a student in school. You know, the, the employer would be your teacher, your coaches, your principal, et cetera, et cetera. Don't be lazy. Be a good student. Learn. Be educated so that you can be a good witness and be a good servant of Christ. All right? To employers and supervisors, in some ways you could say this could apply to teachers. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6 verse 9. Note, these say the words, most of these verses have slaves. Um, slaves in ancient Greek, Greco-Roman culture was very different than uh, slavery in the United States. So I'm not going to deal with that here. Um, that might be for a good Bible study. But understand it's not the same kind of slavery. So, but anyways, basic line is, if you're an employer, you're a teacher, whatever, don't be burdensome. Um, don't show favoritism. Don't threaten. So, all right. To youth, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Hum, straightforward. To widows. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask, to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. First Timothy 5, 5 to 6. So, uh, widows, those who are lonely, find your hope and your companionship in Christ. <clears throat> Finally, to everyone, the commandments are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, verse 9. And then also I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. Let each his lesson learn with care and all the household well shall fare. So there's pretty much we went through it all. There's also this section that's called Christian Questions and Their Answers. I'm not going to go over this in these videos. But there you go. That's the Christian life and the table of duties. Uh, one thing I want to end with is there's two. So as we finish talking about this thing of vocation, one thing I want to talk about is excellence. And <clears throat> I've, you know, as a pastor, I go, to, I've been to a lot of events. I've um, gone to like basketball games, football games, volleyball games, speech uh, choir concerts, things like that for our kids. And and some of these kids, it's just amazing the abilities some of these kids have. And they, every and the thing is, reality is every person, every human being, and sometimes kids don't realize that this includes them, um, 
they're gifted. They all have gifts and abilities. They may be different, but they have them. They're unique. They're different. They're, they're gifts and abilities that God has given. And these gifts and abilities are designed to are things that God uses for them, or the ways for them to serve in their vocation. And the biggest challenge is to not uh, be lazy or slothful, to not put in full effort. Rather, we are to seek excellence. We are to desire excellence. We are to praise excellence. We don't do the barely got by, get by work. We do what God has given us the ability to do. And in so doing, we're witnesses of Christ. And we do give a little bit more beauty and excellence to this world that we live in. And finally, I want to mention something about stewardship. Vocation ultimately is about stewardship. But everything I've talked about is about stewardship. God has given you gifts, and you are stewards of those gifts. And you're supposed to use them to the service of him. But this is not just stewardship of your abilities. This is stewardship of your time. That means that you spend time in worship. That means you make sure you receive the sacrament. That means that you spend time in prayer. You read the scriptures, whatever. It also means that you are stewards of, again, you also serve. You serve in the church. Um, in our congregation, we are always needing people to usher. You're a steward in that capacity. You're a steward um, by maybe serving as an elder, serving as uh, on our count church council, serving as a Sunday school teacher or a midweek teacher, VBS, whatever. There are many ways that you could serve and offer your time and abilities in service to our God. There's also stewardship of money. The term is sometimes is used as tithing. And technically, the tithe is an old covenant thing. But nonetheless, we are still supposed... The question is, so am I, do you have to give to God, give money to God? And the question, and it's kind of a... It's an odd question. And I don't know if, this, if have to is the right word. But it is expected. Because here it comes down to this question. Does God give you good things? Has God given you good things? Do you have a home? Do you have a family? Do you have a job? Do you have a car? Are you able, are you able to get a meal every day of the week? Um, you have some... Have, has Jesus died for your sins? Have you received salvation? Are you indeed a Christian? Then, then yes, it's expected that you give to the church for the purpose of the ministry, serving, of spreading the gospel. This, yes, you should keep the church accountable and make sure that it's doing the, the work of ministry. But nonetheless, it is expected as a Christian. It is a fruit of the Christian faith. It is something you do. It's like people, I mean, technically, yes, you're supposed to. Technically, yes, it's a command to give. I mean, I just read it there. You're supposed to provide for the means of the pastor. So the pastor can actually focus on the ministry of the gospel and 
also be available, you know, people in the hospital, things like that. But it's also for mission to support missionaries to provide to make sure the lights are on and things like that, that the building is heated. It's provide for a variety to variety, provide for a variety of needs and concerns in our community, the missions in our community. Yes, you are to do all of these things to support it. Why? Because God has given you and blessed you with many things. The general 10% is the recommended is the Old Testament tithe was 10%. You're supposed to give 10% of your your gross income. What is the what's the percentage in the New Testament? The New Testament doesn't give a percentage. The old covenant was 10%. Some people will pick 10% just as a rule of thumb for their own mindset and say their own peace of mind. And that's a good idea. But if you want to go to 15%, you can go to 15%. You can go to 20%, whatever. 10% is just a general, easy guideline, 10% of gross income. So we do this in response to God's generous giving. Um, when I was in... When I was a pa serving as a pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church or St. Peter Lutheran Church in either in in Ocheedon, Iowa, one of the things that we used to always sing at the end after every offering, and I didn't know that when I first got there, I didn't know that we were going to sing this. It's like, like I'm just standing there all of a sudden. They're saying like, whoa, 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 what's what's going on here? Nobody gave me any heads up or any warning because I've never been at a church that did this, but. It's hymn 781 in this hymnal. And so this is what we'd always sing. We'd sing, we, we give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. And here's more. It says, may we thy bounties thus, as stewards true, receive. And gladly as thou blessest us, to thee our first fruits give. And that's the thing. It also says to give your first fruits. And this is something that comes up, especially in some of the readings of the scripture is reflected. Why first fruit? What's the difference between giving the first fruit and just fruit? Well, the reason you give your first fruit is because it's an act of faith. You don't know what's going to happen to the rest of the fruit. You don't know, well, maybe I won't have enough when I'm done. First fruit is an act of faith and trust that God will provide for you, even when you've entrusted that 10% deal. It's an act of faith. And as I said, you know, faith without work, you know, as James says, faith without works is dead. So tithe stewardship, giving, giving of time, talents, and your physical treasures, your money, is an act of faith. It's trusting in God. And by the way, just so you know, I pastors, we don't get any richer. The more offering there is and there does not, we nobody gets richer. We have a set, um, we have a set uh, income level. It doesn't, it changes based upon how many years we've been in ministry, but that's it. It doesn't change. If we are offering, our offering, Bo booms 200 300 percent or whatever 
we're still going to receive the same. It's not for, but there's going to be a lot more ministry done, a lot more good done to the commute for the community around us and the church all around the world. And yes, part of stewardship is supplying for missionaries abroad because see, as stewards, as in our vocation, as Christians, your job. So here I'm going to read from scripture here, key verses. And this will be kind of a good ending verses for what we're talking about here, about vocation, about the Christian life. And so I'm going to start here with Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. So Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark 16, verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his names to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving the wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. John chapter 20. You've heard this before, but again, it's worth repeating. John chapter 22 and chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 23. Or 20, sorry, 21 and 22, 23. Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
John chapter or Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Romans chapter 10 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the theme in all of those scriptures is that you, me, all Christians have the job of proclaiming the gospel. That others may hear and by hearing may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is ultimately your job in everything. That's why you are to be stewards of your time, your talents, and your treasures. It's to support the spreading of the gospel. Because it says you're to go into all nations. I will never, ever end up in a place like, you know, Israel. Well, maybe, as far as I know. I'm not going to end up in Europe. I'm not going to be in Africa, South America. I'm not going to be in Iran. Yes, we are at this moment as I'm recording this, there's tensions between the United States and Iran. And frankly, there has been since the 70s. But there are, we have missionaries there risking their lives to tell the gospel. We have missionaries in China risking their lives to tell the gospel. You, me, we are charged to support those missionaries because we can't get there. We can't get there to proclaim the gospel. And quite often you'll hear people say, well, we don't need to worry about missionaries in those other countries. First off, understand that no one can believe that Jesus is in believe. People come to faith by hearing the gospel and saying that we don't believe they need to hear the gospel saying we want them to go to hell. And I pray that nobody would think that. We, we want them to be saved. Revelation says that in Revelation 7, John saw all nations, people from all tribes and languages and races standing before God. White, so that means people who are white Caucasian Americans like myself or people from China, Japan, Egypt, you know, Somalia, Iraq, Russia, wherever, Argentina, Brazil. God, you will see people from all over the world there in eternity. And the, that's because the gospel came to them, and we are to support that missions. And furthermore, it's people say, well, we need missionaries here. And like, no, we've got a lot of them. You, me, 
We are the missionaries. You are a missionary wherever you live. You, your job is to proclaim the gospel. If you're a student, and by the way, if you're a student in school, you are so you are in the midst of a thick mission field. Everybody that's in your classroom, everybody that you are you go to you play basketball with, play football with, those who are in band with you, in choir with you, they're all part of that mission field. They are all people to whom you could proclaim the gospel. And they may be a member of a church, but they may not be active. In our congregation alone, we have over we have over 40 kid, high school students that are members of this church. I guarantee it, we're nowhere close. We I'd say maybe 10 or 15 of them are in church in any given month. And so there's a good over well over half of them never set foot in this church. So they're in the mission field. They are people to whom you may be a witness, that they may come and hear the word. So that's where we're going to end this video. And I have one more video left, and we're going to talk about the church here. We're going to talk, and uh, we're going to talk about preaching and those, and we will be done. So thank you, and God bless.